0: Welcome to the collective voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. Hi, everyone. It's Mike McNutt with Weedy. This is a continuation of episode 125 Best Business Practices in AI. Our expert roundtable Ram Ramal, Manager of Data Science Engineering with UNC Health, Jared Stahl, Senior Director of Advanced Analytics and AI with the Mayo Clinic, John Loomis, Head of Technology and AI and Engineering with Softion. Laura Adams, senior advisor with the National Academy of Medicine, and Dr. Jigger Patel, senior director, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure Product Management for Healthcare with Oracle Cerner.
1: I'm going to throw a little curveball, and don't get bad, mad at me. We didn't have this on the question list. Uh, health uh, health equity is uh, you know a big concern with you know with AI and particularly. Uh, you know, you know, health and Human Services—that's one of their big pillars that they've been trying to achieve in this recent administration, actually the one before as well. Uh, and you know, we we've, we've seen the data that's being you know utilized to be able to create this generative—you know—generative uh, you know, generative AI uh, is you know kind of has a, a bias, right? Because it's not trained on it. Uh, just just some comments about how we can get past that problem. Uh, maybe uh, some some uh, insights, perhaps, in what's happening with health equity related to generative AI. Love to hear your thoughts. Uh, so I will look for a volunteer first before we. Uh, I don't want to spring that on you. So I'll, I'll I'll give it a I'll give it a go. Uh,
2: Ed. Right, yeah, um, so from a from a uh, you know equity perspective, it first starts with the with the acknowledgement that there is a bias in. In the normal everyday, of um, and you look at okay, GPT is trained on the internet. There is an inherent bias of the data coming in. Then that influences the model, and that's that's one way that that bias can kind of come out and, and can interfere with equity. And then secondarily, uh, you know, to the Amazon example we saw earlier, it, the engine can then take on its own life from a bias perspective. Also, if not carefully monitored, and, and safeguards are put in place. So when people think about all the sources of bias, it's not just the computer that's, that's potentially putting bias in there. It's humans that are creating content that get consumed. Um, it's also in the programmers and uh, understanding the, the capability or what things may be biased and or interfere with equity. Um, it's multi-layered in a way that is way more complex than I think we fully understand. Um, and then there's a, even at the end point, there's a there's a bias coming in the other direction from a patient perspective, et cetera. So all those things put together um, make it a, a very hard topic to unravel, um, thinking about uh, the overall equity uh, related to uh, the, the, the use of these technologies. Now, there are things that can be done to fight those sorts of things from an equity perspective, and a simple use case might be, generating patient information uh, at a level that's appropriate for the person that's getting uh, the the information. Uh, We, by default, say everything should be at fifth grade level. Well, I'm a physician. I have an advanced degree. That's probably not how you want to talk to me about something in healthcare. But then also in the other direction, uh, let's not assume who that person is and what their capability is. We know uh, demographic information, then we can ask the question as well to say, are we treating them fairly from a literacy perspective related to equity and what we give them uh, as well. So it's very, very complicated topic and has uh, you know, lots of fingers that get out uh, very,
1: very quickly. Okay, yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, thanks, Jinkar. uh Do we have
3: uh, another volunteer? I'll just add just a, a brief, um, I, I think that, you know, AI in this case can be both the problem and the solution. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot, you know, biases is an, an incredibly, um, interesting topic. I, I do think it does require the experts who can, you know, make sure, you know, when, when you think of monitoring your data, you know, you're right. The large, um, health plan, Plans the hospital systems. They're going to have some of those experts who can who can monitor. Um, but the systems themselves need to be able to you know output enough so that that folks can you know the experts can weigh in to see if if those biases exist. Okay, thank you, Ron, Any thoughts?
4: So uh, I was thinking about that from like how can we convert that into opportunities? Like. Generally, for me, like uh, there is a lot of missing data on social determinant health side in healthcare cells, healthcare side. We don't know a lot about patient characteristics uh, as we are trying to treat them, and that is somewhere in our clinical data. Somewhere, I wonder, I know, like so I know, some of the company have tried and it's trying to use this. But can we use uh, I don't like I would say like the natural language processing or generative AI to get those information and then convert it into quote unquote table. So then we can understand it a little bit better. So it's, I think the problem is really like the, some of the bias, discrimination, all those things are our part of life. It's going to be challenging and we need to have keep discussion. But for me, I think, can we use that technology and then make that problem even more from the light perspective, like build some kind of table, show that data discreetly so that we can act on it. And I, I hope we can do that something like as a group, as a, like the I know as like that, that might be one area where we might be able to leverage an AI to uh, spotlight on some of the things which we know already, but we would be able to get the discrete data from the uh, EMR perspective.
1: Okay, thank you. Laura.
5: These co-panelists are making such great points today. It's just an honor to be with them. Um, I'm thinking about how the public got introduced to the bias in AI through the pulse oximeter story um, that people began to understand of the things that got strapped on everybody's finger during COVID to determine how, you know, part of part of uh, the determination of how sick they were, their pulse ox levels. And um, it was trained primarily on white skin. So if you were someone of color, uh, you were told your pulse oximeter reading was high, higher than it would have been normally, it would have been if it had been trained on appropriately uh, on um, people of color. And they were sent home in a lot of cases. So I think that we've understood almost from the very beginning of this tsunami, at least this way, that we really have to be much more vigilant around this. The notion, too, of uh, how this will, the the equity that comes out of this, I'm wondering if we can't develop uh, AI to be uh, who watches the watcher. So, if we've got people who are um, using AI, and then can we develop AI that monitors and watches it for the kinds of things that we need? So, I I like the idea, John, that you said it can be the the solution and the problem. I'm going to steal that.
1: Yeah, (laughs) Laura, uh, something that you you had mentioned uh, earlier, and you know, calling out for standards, uh, regulations. Uh, I'm very interested, Laura, your perspective of. You know, as all the regulatory focus right now at states and the federal level, what what should they get involved with when it relates to AI? What kind of standards, what kind of you know, programs or regulation do you think sh- should be called for?
5: You know, I think that we are in a... a- Really, we've got a big learning curve here and we've got to go up that learning curve very, very fast. We're also in the phase of the Gartner hype cycle where there is the the, the hype about the technology itself. I think we're also in a hype cycle of fear around it as well. Uh, we know that with the big tech companies, many of them calling for regulation, there's been looking at that and people are saying, gee, do they do they really mean that some say yes, they do for the right reasons. Others say, of course they do, because if you can make the regulation bar so high, you prevent barriers of entry to smaller companies more uh, that want to come in and try to, to compete with them. So they've got a big job, those that are creating policy here, which is why I'm involved in countless forums now this, this fall to be able to, with just different audiences, I want to listen, I want to learn about where do we think that sweet spot is, where there's enough here so that we can make sure that this thing doesn't break bad because we, we can't afford to lose the promise of it. And I think that if it does start to break bad, if we will see sand thrown into the gears of progress here, that people will step up and they'll step up hard. And I think that we want to avoid that, which is why I'm seeing such a terrific response among industry saying, we're gonna do a lot on our own. And by the way, we've already done that. I'm working with the afto RAPS group and they say, we've got a disclosure card for, um, for security. We can do a disclosure card that's voluntary for AI as well and tell you whether or not we've met your set of principles from the National Academy of Medicine. I would like to see industry really stepping up big on that because I think there needs to be this parsimonious hand come in. We've got to learn how to deal with bad actors because there will be bad actors. So that to me is 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 different. Let's not design the entire policy framework for the bad actors. Um, I think that's never wise and would be a mistake at this point as well. So we've got a lot to to, to think about here. But I feel like that there is thoughtfulness going on in certain places. I'm going to the White House next week for a roundtable and a conversation around this. So there's a lot of learning. On the other hand, I think when people watch Congress, um, with listening to the testimony of Facebook and others, it was kind of terrifying. So there's work to be done here.
1: Yeah, it's, yeah that's a, it's a really interesting balance, encouraging innovation and yet being able to keep the bad actors out of there. You know, we uh, we had a speaker uh, recently that was a C, C I guess it was kind of like a chief technology type officer of a startup type company. And their big complaint was that these companies are just popping out of no, everywhere, just utilizing ChatGPT and putting a face to it. And they're not doing any quality measurements. And, you know, and yet you have people like Safiyan that's, you know, investing their entire, you know, strategic vision in making this real. So, you know, how do we, uh, you know, balance that? That's, it's an interesting point. Thank you. Uh, others have a perspective? Um, regulations and what should kind of fed, federal regulations should we get into uh, or, or not? Yeah, I, I do
2: think, um, in particular um the not it's, it's not a requirement necessarily but a a push towards transparency um and whatever we call it the nutrition facts or the uh you know trust indicator or something else um when these things are utilized will be important um and that goes from End user adoption, all the way to you know the the regulators and the powers that be. Uh, how do we have something that is uh, common that can uh, adjudicate uh, those sorts of things? Um, is is going to be important? Um, we many many large corporations, uh, many small corporations hide results, right? And we've seen this in the in the medical literature even, right? And in, in the rethinking of, oh, is the medical literature all it's cracked up to be when we are finding people that are fabricating results, et cetera. So it, it has to go back to a transparency and an open conversation uh, in a way that is meaningful and not just lip, lip service. Um, it is incredibly hard. And I don't envy Laura and the folks working on this on how to do that. Um, because we've seen heavy handed regulation. Well, that is well intentioned, that uh, just slows everything down and and, yeah. and actually becomes a hindrance uh, to the care of people. And in fact, I was with a colleague last week who was describing uh, EHR information is firsthand information, stuff about the patient and what I need to take care of that person and thirdhand information, which is what am I going to put in the record to satisfy regulators and others that mm-hmm. are there. So there is a, there's a funny balance between the two. And if we take it back to the the origin of what a, a physician does in a visit and, and the reason they do a document as a simple example, it really was a communication tool. It was a reminder. It was a sticky note for themselves. And it was, if I send that patient someplace else, I need something to explain myself and the black box I have on my shoulders for why we're doing what we're doing. Um, So it will be very, very tricky uh, to to do those things and and have a level of transparency and appropriate regulation. Uh, Ironically, some of the people that are saying You know, we need regulation or also the first to throw regulation out the door when they want to create something. So it's a funny balance.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. good. Thank you. Um, uh, uh, Rom, uh, from a provider perspective, uh, you know, you may be looking at vendors or you may be deciding to do this yourself. Your perspective on, you know, uh, adhering to state and federal uh, type guidance that would keep your vendors safe for you versus innovative. What do you think?
4: Yeah, I think uh, from at least from my perspective, when I see this, we need uh, because like the healthcare, I know everybody says this. Like when the space they work on, the decision uh, our clinicians are going to take is like really high risk decision. Yes, I don't want my clinician to take decision me regarding I don't know diabetes medicine medication or something based on algorithm. And why would I want them for the patient and the patient I'm serving for? So I I I know like the, I know like some of the points Ziger is making about the, some people might have break the rule already but I do think we need really good regulation on this like AI tools because the cost of doing wrong is really bad and I always think from the me being a patient I really don't want that for me and I don't want that for our patient also because that that's the same argument there so it might be limiting innovation but I I think we need thoughtful innovation here uh, it might take some time, but it's it's really imperative to get it right. Thanks. Yeah. And Ram,
2: you bring up an interesting point because one of the things that having moved into this new role and, and into a bigger company, mm-hmm. um, thinking about these on a global scale also is very different, right? If we mm-hmm. think about the United States, we have a very different healthcare environment than say sub-Saharan Africa, yeah, yeah. where AI and the recommendations from AI, even if off by a little bit, better than nothing right Mm -hmm. in some instances so there is also this global uh, you know perspective that we have to think about and advancing humanity as a whole with these kinds of tools in healthcare can that chat bot uh, help a a person who's helping to take care of people managing a health environment but might not be a physician or might not be trained to that degree but know they're they're doing it at the, at the top of their license and then AI can help elevate them. So there's also that that other flip side to that in America, we're embarrassment of riches, right? And that's not true every place else. Um, and then you, you think about other uh, you know nations that are more um, national governments run healthcare as well. Um, they're probably ahead of us on some of these things because the, the healthcare burden falls to the government uh, which is very different than in America as
1: well. <laughs> Yeah, um, thank you, uh, John. Uh, you know, coming personally coming from a, a vendor background, uh, meeting all the different requirements at the state level you know, as you're selling nationally to everybody is difficult to keep track of. Difficult to meet uh, when you have conversations with uh, potential uh, customers. You know, make you know they'll ask the questions: Are you meeting our specific, specific state requirements? And of course, then there's the federal ones. Just, just curious, your perspective on. Um, you know, meeting regulations and innovation?
3: Yeah. Um, I, I think that, you know, f- first I want to, you know, maybe respond a little bit to what, um, you know, what was said earlier from Laura around, you know, the, the big players, I think are, you know, the, I think they are trying to position themselves a little bit to to shape the, the destiny of this regulation, mm-hmm. um, maybe to protect their uh, mode of their own making. Um, I I think um, as an application developer, I, I am a little um, you know concerned that you know the the it will slow innovation as these things come up. Fortunately, Softion we're in a ton of states, you know, working with state and federal regulations is certainly nothing new to us. So I think of guidelines as being you know the the right layer, and and I think you know coming from it from a national level may make sense in a lot of areas. I can tell you, though, I've been in technology for about 20 years and been in data for most of my time and, and certainly have seen some of the, the hypes and the, the things. We're in a really big wave right now. And I think that the innovation that's coming out, I've, I can't think of a time where it's been this this large and at this fast. So, you know I think the regulations do need to exist and we need to maintain you know a a sense of it but there is that really really delicate balance of where are we stifling innovation and and maybe you know healthcare can't lead that discussion but certainly we can be um you know a major uh proponent of making sure that the regulation is um on the right side of that line you know right okay thank you it's interesting having a layer Uh,
1: Jigar, um, your perspective being a vendor? I mean,
2: um, it is um, maddeningly frustrating when you have to say, that I have to worry about Texas versus Ohio versus California. Um, and the even in just the EHR space, medical practice space, um, the difference between NPs in these various states, they're they're all different. Um, and and architecting things that that have to be state level um do it takes away from getting to the next new thing that can help people take care of people so it it, it's also an allocation of resources problem and john can share this right if i'm worried about that extra state or other nation um am i really um you know using my my resources from a development perspective to their fullest um and then you know the U.S. Is, is probably the worst when it comes to everybody um, having their opinion uh, at a state level and by the nature of our republic. So it is um, it is something that we have to consider um, and um, something I have to I keep my ears to the ground on because and we have a whole team of people that are doing this uh, as well. Right. And, and monitoring. And we have to make decisions from a product perspective, to say, will we will potentially, um, you know, uh, program to the lowest or highest common denominator, right? It goes in both directions from a state perspective. Uh, California and cars is a perfect example. Cars are engineered to California standards across the world now. Um, and this and this has same kind of implication um, when you're thinking about state-level regulations that can push a whole marketplace in a, in a way when you're talking about economies as large as, as places like California.
1: Okay. Uh, thank you, uh, Jagar. Um, I did see a hand that was raised. Please put your comments in the chat, and hopefully, our, our speakers are able to monitor the chat to be able to uh, provide some answers. Uh, I, I will Hi, Ed, um, Ed. Yes.
0: Hi, it's Michael. That was Jared Stahl, one of our panelists from Mayo Clinic.
6: Oh, gotcha. Jared, go Hi, ahead I and share buddy. your thoughts. <laughs> oh, okay. I appreciate that. Um, I, yeah, just listening to some of the comments, you know, I think we've taken a pretty conservative approach to exploring some of this technology and some of the earlier dialogue, you know, we, we experimented quite heavily in the administrative domain and we're getting to the point right now where we're inching towards the practice. Um, and also being, you know, very clear, uh, to take our, you know, regulatory risk along with us on the journey, both internal and external, to see even within the confines of, of what we're seeing, what we can accomplish um, in, in that space and in that domain, um, as, as well as being very transparent with some of our key strategic partners, you know, in the form of, of our EMR, um, seeing what they're really setting the table for as, as it relates to generative AI and this technology. Um, and so it, it's it's an interesting time. I think, I think we're right on the precipice of, of trying to answer some very complex questions and talk about where we want to go next with it. Uh, again, on that hype curve, it's 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 going to be an interesting journey.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, Jared, thanks for, thanks for joining. uh Kali, uh, I have to ask you a question. I know Mayo Clinic is very innovative, and uh, you probably would take an hour to describe what I'll be asking next, but maybe just in three minutes. What cool things are you doing with AI at Mayo Clinic? So I
6: think one of the things that I could reference is our exploration into the domain of um, ambient listening. We are our, our key vendor is also looking into running the results of ambient listening through generative AI. Uh, one example I would use is uh, after visit summaries. So there's a lot of administrative burden on the physician population to create these summaries. So having that ambient listening in the room, running it through a generative AI model, creating that summary, setting the table. And a lot of what we do, whether we're using RPA layered in with AI or generative AI, we're looking at the approach of we're setting the table for whoever's interacting with this, but a human still has to put their stamp on it. Sure. So even when we go into this domain where we may have a few horses in the race, as it relates to ambient listening, as we go forward to producing, um, an ultimate decision down the road um, we, we have that we have that thought in mind all the time is we're we're creating more streamlined approaches to using this but we're not taking the human out of the loop by any means
1: right uh, do you have visions of taking that ambient listening to feed decision support and provide, and provide- I, I would see it going down
6: that direction um I haven't had I haven't heard conversations on that yet. the The big focus is this this uh, visit summary exercise exercise. I think it creates a lot of uh, a lot of time sucker right Again, we're looking again, where can we create uh, the space for more time with our patients? That was one of the things that got surfaced from our physician population right away. I think the other part is a lot of this there's just the uh, message management in general, the communications. Uh, so that is our first
2: focus. All right, thank you. Ambient listening is an an interesting um, technology and and evolution because you're actually combining several different AI technology. You've got speech, language, generative, and then thinking about adding in video eventually, right? It's going to be a camera and a microphone uh, that are in these rooms. But it is inevitable, in my opinion, that that set of conversations will create – Additional uh, you know, capabilities to lower burden, administrative burden, billing burden, those sorts of things. But then to Laura's point, talking about facial expression, body language, those other things, tone, pitch, all those things can be if you just if you take the camera out, all those things can be surmised from that conversation as well. So it's not just the direct words that are getting coming out of a, a language engine, but it's also the intonations and other things that can be inferred from it, which make it really, really interesting. And then the one use case and, and thing I've talked to a number of people about is, what is the propensity for the patient to actually do what we've discussed? Because adherence to the medication program and the care plan is is a persuasive thing physicians do spend a lot of time on. Um, and that is something that is, is new and different. Um, and that can come out of an ambient listening environment as well. So it can be additive. Um, I think the simple, you know, you have a diabetic that has these things that you guys talked about, you know, foot soreness or, or weakness in the foot recommend something. Um, those are kind of naturals. Um, I had another colleague who actually said 70% of what we do in primary care is known. Make that easy for me, but then use the physician black box for the other 30%. So now you're really having the physician work at top of license as well. So there's a capability to do that as well.
5: Yeah. Yeah. I I just got a file on for a second. for Jared, what you said, and Digger, what you just said, this idea that the ambient listening, I mean, we've got a huge, talk about a, a pandemic, we've got a pandemic of burnout here. This is really critically important for the future of our healthcare system. We also know that that by making it multimodal, I was listening to a doctor talk about this on Friday, and he said, um, but you got a picture my exam office just yesterday afternoon where I'm asking the patient, have you cut back on your smoking? And he's going, oh, yeah, like this. And the wife is sitting behind him going like this. And so so and also this notion of grunts and uh, when people will answer the mm-hmm, things like that. So we've got a ways to go with just the, ne- the language, the voice. But when we start to make it multimodal, um, there there's so many. So that human in the loop, Jared, I think you're so right about that. It's, it's really such an exciting time for all of this. I mean, who would have thought that we would be able to lessen this kind of administrative burden? I wish I think we all hoped we would have done it when we started out with EHRs because we had no idea what that was going to do.
6: Absolutely. And I would I would just say it's also helping us reimagine the work, the roles in, in the organization. What what roles will still be there in the future? How are we transforming them now? Mm-hmm. You know, the math is there for every organization uh, and as, as it relates to certain um, positions like nursing, right? So you, you can't fulfill the gap that exists. So how can you augment? How can you transform to alleviate that? Yeah. Um, and and, and some of our innovations look in that direction, right? What positions can we look at from a role or a task perspective that we can fundamentally transform or even reinvent?
5: Absolutely, to get people to be able to practice at the top of their humanity.
1: Exactly. Right. We have a focus uh, at Weedy on value-based care and different payment models. And, you know, certainly patient adherence is something true, you know, very very important to be successful in those types of models. And I would love to hear any thoughts within the next two minutes, because we're almost done, uh, on patient adherence and AI. Uh, Any perspectives? So I I would throw two words, digital therapeutics and chatbot. The, The
2: convergence of those two things can extend... And make a difference in engagement from a patient in their own healthcare. Uh, we've seen examples of it um, from, a, from both of those things. Um, the chatbot one is exciting to me in particular because now we can program things to keep people involved. You know, there's an epidemic of loneliness. So that alone affects healthcare as well. So, how do I use a technology like a chatbot um, and, and program it to engage in a way that feels real and helps the patient um, uh, from a mental health perspective also.
1: Okay,
4: other thoughts? Uh, For me, user interface and trust, yes. We need to make it accessible for our patient, like how they use it. All these AI needs to be accessible. And there should be a way for people to find out more if they want to know. I know some people don't want to know this. I saw the example on chat about, I don't want to know how the OWASP was built but I just want to understand some things. Like we are going to have a different level of patient engagement. And if we want to make this global or like scalable, we need to make sure that when we are asking the question on chatbot, and I want to understand more about how did you get this information? There should be an easy way to go back somewhere and find those information. So it's interface, how you are, how they're accessing, and how are we creating the trust so that patient can use the app. I would just layer onto the, the chatbot
6: comment and, you know, talk about creating a more seamless experience, more interoperable experience for the patient journey, uh, creating more pathways to address, you know, different demographics, because you you have people who are used to living their life, you know, through Amazon, through Instacart, through all these other technologies, and then they go into healthcare and they got to answer the same question three different times. You know, versus having a facial scan to say, yes, you are still the same person. Let's check the box. You can go into the room and, and go see your your provider.
1: Yeah, right. I always always wondered about devices, you know, if a patient's willing to invest in a device, in a, you know, for example, you know, taking your medicine, right, and being able to make sure that you're refilling prescriptions and you're taking from the right day. And um, I'm just thinking smoke detectors, boy, they can tell you someone's smoking or not. <laughs> but that's well, another topic, right? The, the <laughs> ultimate
2: device is already in their pocket. They already have their phone with them. And it's that's it. right. And you don't need nope. other devices. It's right yeah. there. It's already everybody's already acquiesced
1: to having a device that can do this. Yeah. But device is so much fun, Jkar. Just just <laughs> Hey guys. Thank you so much for, I I, I would love to tap each one of you to uh, be able to go into further sessions. And uh, maybe we might invite you to join a couple of work groups to to also give your insights there on the particular topics. Thank you again. Michael, I'll turn it over to you to say goodbye.
0: Thanks, Ed. Uh, That was cool how that ended. This has been the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast, where the healthcare IT communities connect, collaborate, and create solutions for a better health system. Find all our episodes as well as information on our association at our website, wedi.org. Thank you for joining us and be safe.